0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this afternoon. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and while you're turning there, let me just express my appreciation for the privilege to be here to Pastor Richard and also uh, all the folks who are serving us so well in uh, putting on this conference. Uh, Certainly, the words of Hebrews 6.10 are quite true that God is not unjust so as to forget your labor of love for his name and having ministered to and still ministering to the saints. So I know the Lord is pleased with a heart just to serve, so thank you so much for that. As you've heard, the theme for the conference is ambition, and my focal point for this afternoon is on the issue of sanctification, or if I could frame it this way, our ambition is to be like Jesus Christ to be conformed to his image, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And uh, the sub-theme, I think, has been mentioned as well of simplicity in God's plan. And I think often, too often, sanctification has been made more complicated than it should. That folks have made it complicated uh, with complex formulas that there's these you know, 25 steps that you need to take in order to be sanctified, uh, or they've shrouded it in mysterious secrets, that if you uh, can attain to the enlightenment of this spiritual secret, then you'll experience some transforming work, or uh, in our day, ministry gimmicks, sell books and programs. Right, 40 days of whatever will get you where you need to go, and we have all the posters and books and campaigns that will work with it, or uh, some kind of special techniques. Uh, seems as if, and you can tell you're getting old when you start to say this because you've seen several cycles of it pass through uh, popularity, uh, but every so often uh, people will reach back into the mystics uh, and start to pull out little prayer tricks and ways of working through things and start to push those as the key to real spiritual sanctification. And so all of a sudden we have a, a turn toward the, the kind of mysticism and and uh, spiritual techniques of prayer and all kinds of deals that, that are now the answer. They're the answer. Right? And, and instead of... Uh, really, a pretty simple truth from God's Word. But let me be clear that when I use the word simple, I'm using that as opposed to complex or complicated. I'm not using it in opposition to easy. Something can be simple and hard. Right? It's not, it's, when I'm saying simple, I'm meaning not complex, not complicated. There aren't a million turns in trying to figure out how God has designed this to work. The battle with sin is never going to be easy. But it is a pretty simple, straightforward one. And sanctification is made a lot harder when people complicate it when they hide secrets that somehow make it as if God doesn't want us to become like Christ without having to go through a lot of trickery to get there. But we're going to look this afternoon at a text of Scripture that I think is one of the uh, clearest and straightforward texts about what God is doing uh, to make us like his Son. Look, if you would, please, at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'd like to read verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. If, you're, uh, if you were going to be back in junior high and have to diagram the sentence, you know, where you have to put it on the sticks and all that kind of stuff, or figure it out, you would find the subject, and you'd see it in the word we. All right, we all. Then you'd be going through the verse, and you come down about to the middle of it, and you see these words are being transformed. There's the, there's the kernel of this sentence. We are being transformed. All right, that's the heart of it. What comes between the we and our being transformed are two statements that I would suggest to you are conditions that have to be met for the transformation to happen. And then the actual statement of what that transformation is, the character of it, and then at the end of the verse, we find out how that happens, the cause of it. So that's basically what we're going to do. We're just going to sort of unpack this verse and try to understand what God has for us about being transformed into the image of Christ. So let's begin with the two conditions. Notice in verse it says, But we all, with unveiled face, there's the first, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That's the second. Those words, unveiled face, if I could put them under a tag, let's use the word illumination. Right, That a veil has been lifted off the face So that you can see. And the reason I call it illumination is because that's what's going on in the text around it. The best way to understand what unveiled face means here is actually to look at the language in verses 14 through 16. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So unveiled means the veil that's mentioned in verses 14 and 15 has been removed. All right, drop down into chapter 4 and look at verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the veil refers to a spiritual inability to understand the truth of God's word. They read it. They read the Old Covenant. They read Moses, but they can't get it because there's a veil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't have it. That's why in chapter 4, verse 6, we didn't read to the answer to it, right? The parallel in 4, 6 to the veil being lifted is God has caused the light to shine in our hearts so that we might see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's the knowledge of the glory of God. So an unveiled face is one that is expressed of the light that is shined in the heart so that someone could know Christ. It's a work of God that brings light to the understanding. And that's absolutely necessary, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, because Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So there has to be a work of illumination. God has to do that. So before transformation can happen, there has to be a work of divine illumination. God has to cause the light to shine in the heart. And that's because the natural man, Paul says in the first letter of the Corinthians, does not receive the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him. And that's important for us to understand because... When we talk about this spiritual inability, we're not actually saying that an unbeliever is mentally incompetent, he can read his Bible. We're saying, actually, that he's spiritually incorrigible. He considers the truth of God to be foolishness, right? He rejects it. Because he doesn't accept the truth of God. His heart is in rebellion against God. Until God causes the light to shine in and removes that rebellion, the person can never be transformed by the word. And you know this from examples in Scripture as to uh, what it looks like. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns and says, but who do you say that I am? And you remember the answer of Peter? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's Jesus' comment on that? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And other than he's saying, Peter... What you just confessed is the truth, and the way you came to understand it was because my Father made that known to you. Right, Similar thing in Acts chapter 16, when Paul's there preaching, it says, and the Lord opened up Lydia's heart that she would receive the gospel. It's the work of God that opened her heart so that she would receive it. Or what Jesus taught in John chapter 6, when he was confronting the the leaders of his day, he says, everyone that hears and learns from my Father comes to me. Right? So it's a work of God which changes the disposition of the heart and mind so that it becomes receptive to the truth of God. It's God causing the light to shine in. Right? That's the illumination that Paul is referring to here. Uh, I'm a Baptist, so I'll quote you from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. It describes it this way. Regeneration consists in the giving of a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. So I'm not teaching a new doctrine here. This is something that has been recognized by believers uh, from the time of the Scriptures. That men do not, men and women do not come to Christ of their own ability. They don't come to Christ because they're smarter than other people. They come to Christ because God works effectually in the heart to remove the resistance that's there and to shine light into their understanding. Now, this could be just like the duh point of the sermon, right? You will never be transformed into Christ's likeness unless you have first been illumined by the power of God through the gospel. But it's so important because sometimes there are people who are striving and striving against the wind to do some kind of moral reformation in their life. They keep trying to turn over a new leaf, trying to conquer something, and they're doing it all in their own strength. And often it can translate into external conformity, to external pressures, without a heart that's been renewed. Genuine sanctification and the transformation into the character of Christ begins with the work of God to illumine the mind. But it doesn't stop there. Notice the next statement in the text, but we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Let me give you a second word in terms of conditions, the word investigation. Because here, the person being transformed is actually engaged in looking into a mirror. And they're doing so, and I'll say something about it in a moment, But it's in a present tense. So it's a habitual pattern of looking into a mirror to see the Lord's glory. Now, my guess is all of you, I mean, I say, what's the mirror? You all go, it's the Word, right? But let's not just assume that. Let's actually look in the text around us to make sure that it's grounded in that way. And we already did a little bit, because what does verse 14 say is being read, The Old Covenant, verse 15, Moses is being read. And then if you go down into chapter 4 and verse 2, because we're in the same flow of passage is talking about the Word of God. And then verse 3, our gospel. In verse 4, it's the gospel of the glory of Christ. Verse 5, it's the preaching that's taking place. So clearly where the glory of the Lord is being seen is in the Word of God, the message of God about Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of that gospel. And in fact, the the revelation of that, the combination in verse 18 of the mirror revealing the glory of the Lord. And then if you look in verse 18, it says the same image. So the same image is saying the glory of the Lord. All right, so the message here is the word of God about God's glory found in his son. That's the mirror. Now, another thing about this mirror that we need to understand, because it might be easy for us to immediately jump to the concept in James chapter 1, where it also uses the mirror about the word, but it's using it differently than in this passage. Because in James chapter 1, you walk and look into the mirror, and what do you see? You see yourself. In 2 Corinthians 3, when you look in the mirror, do you see yourself? No, you see the glory of the Lord. The same image. Because you can use mirrors in different ways, right? I mean if if you think about it, if I have a mirror right in front of me, I look into it, I see myself, but if I have a, a mirror over here and I look into it, it will reflect something else to me. In fact, that's what that's what they do in periscopes, right? You look through the bottom mirror, reflects up to a top mirror, and then out. In this particular case what it's saying is as we look into this mirror we're actually seeing the Lord. We're seeing his glory. We're seeing his image. It's actually a window into the glory of God and therefore we're looking in that way. All right, so here's here's the point that I think we need to draw from this is that we will be transformed if we are actually continually looking into the Word of God to see the glory of the Lord. Right, that, that That's how God does the work of transforming us. So let me just make a quick uh, sort of doctrinal comment on illumination so we're clear about it, because we live in a Uh, we live in a day at times where people will talk about illumination and they're actually really more talking about revelation. Right? So here's here's the way I I believe you should think about it. I'm opening up the Word and I'm reading it. The work of the Holy Spirit to help my understanding actually happens via the Word to me. I shouldn't be thinking that the Holy Spirit's over here going, Hey, Dave, here's what that means. Right? Because if he's talking to me like that, that's actually revelation. Right? He's telling me things about the word is revelation. What the Spirit is doing is taking the Word, and as I'm reading it, He's causing the light to shine so that I see God's glory in the Word. He works through truth, as that confession said. All right. So, and that's so important because what we we have a tendency to do is like, okay, we want to grow, we want to grow, and 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 I don't mean this in a in a sarcastic way, but it's like sometimes the last thing we look at is our Bible. We want to go download a million sermons from somebody to tell us something or go run to the bookstore and f- pick up 5 or 10 books about it or go to some seminar. And I'm not I'm not in any way trying to depreciate those vehicles but they're only of value if they're actually taking you in here. Right? If they're helping you read this better, understand it better, because this is what God uses to change us. We have to be looking in the mirror of the Word and seeing the glory of the Lord there. And, and we do that through the, the very nature of this book that God has spoken to us via words. Right? It's not it's not like I put on my, my Captain Crunch decoder glasses, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden things are popping out of there that because I've got the miracle glasses on. Right? It's it's God used words. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Right, So we're looking for the message of God in the words that he's given to us, in the way he put those words together. We're trying to understand it as we work with the text of Scripture and think through it. God uses it to change us because we're seeing his glory in it. And we don't have to do weird things to find the glory of the Lord in the Bible. Right? We don't have to turn... Uh, 10 pegs into symbols of the incarnation or something like that right we we can actually read what god did what god said and have it reveal to us his very character right even if you're going to i don't i mean I don't have time to get in a long side trail about this but even if you're going to say because this text does say we're seeing the glory of the Lord and that clearly is Jesus that as we read the scriptures we should be seeing Jesus that isn't actually some hocus pocus thing I mean let me just illustrate from the gospel of John John 1 3 says you know who spoke the world into existence and created it it was the son of God John 12 tells us, you know who Isaiah saw in the temple? He saw the Son of God. Do you know who was the I am that existed before Abraham? In John 8, Jesus says, it was me. Right? So when Jesus says, you read the scriptures, search them because they speak of me, it's because he's God. Every revelation of God throughout the scriptures finds it central for us in Jesus. We're seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even when we read the commands of God, they're telling us something about the character of God. It's that we want to understand what our God is like. We want to know him. So we read the word so that we can know what he's like. We can see his glory. We can understand him because as was quoted last night in John 17, 3, this is life eternal that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's about knowing him. And he's written this word so that we can know him. And so we look into the word to see his glory. Notice now in the text, because let's talk for a few moments about the character of this transformation. It says, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. I want to just highlight two things about it. First is the process. Notice the language, we are being transformed. So it is actually something that is a process that's happening. Right? The work of God is taking place in the process of transformation. And the word that's used here is a, a pretty strong word. I mean, we, we know Romans twelve two, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It, it's the, it's the, the change of the character and nature of this thing that's happening to us. So the goal of Christ's likeness can never be attained by mere external conformity. There will be an effect there, but it demands an internal renewal that transforms our character. Notice the language, our being transformed. So normally when we use language like that, we would understand that as a passive thing in this sense. You are not transforming yourself. It's God who's transforming you. Right, I have a responsibility, and that is to get in the Word, to read the Word, to investigate it, looking for the glory of the Lord. But as I'm doing that, God is doing a work on me. He is the one transforming me. He's the one with the power to change me into the image of Jesus Christ. We cannot change ourselves. It's a, a position of dependence on God that produces a real change in us. And the second is to notice that it's a present tense again. It's an ongoing work of God. It's progressive, if I could put it that way. And here's, uh, without getting too deep in it, but here's one of the ways I think sanctification has been complicated by popular theories, right? Probably... Uh, a lot of us in here have encountered uh, systems of understanding the christian life that that uh, operate like this there 's the natural man and then he comes to Christ and he becomes a christian, but he 's a carnal Christian until he comes to another point of crisis and after that he becomes and there 's like a million things here right? a spiritual Christian, a dedicated christian. It's the deeper life, the higher life, the victorious life, right? But it's this two-stage process that focuses on the crises. And certainly, it is a decisive crisis, crisis when God calls you out of darkness in the light, right? But if, if the only thing that has happened to you is you now have a ticket to heaven, and that's not actually the crisis that the New Testament talks about. Because it's a new birth. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So part of the problem with that system is it actually reduces what it means to be a Christian to just a a kind of mental ascent. And then people who actually have not been regenerated are wondering why there's no difference in their life. Right? The new birth is what brings forth new life. But it also makes the mistake of elevating, if I could put it this way, too high what it means to be spiritual. It puts, it puts the process of growth outside of the reach of the, if I could just say this way, sort of the normal average believer. Or you can find people think saying things like, well, until you reach this Point of, and whatever you want to call it, consecration, dedication, you do not experience any of the Holy Spirit's transforming work. Right? And the only way it'll happen is if you have some kind of profound experience of dedication, right? The, the formal ways to do it. The first one is the cross on which Jesus died, the second one's the cross on which you die. And I could tell you as a pastor, how many times you encounter people who are struggling with sin issues, who are looking for some crisis experience that will resolve it all, right? And entire systems of church life have been built around a time with altar calls that call, tell people that like, if you come forward and you get dedicated, then you can have victory over your sins. All right, and so, so here's, let's take a garden variety kind of sin struggle. I mean, it's, that's probably not the right way to say it, but let's say someone struggles with their temper, right? They hear a message on dedication, they go forward, and they go, all right, I'm going to give it all to the Lord. My all's on the altar, I'm surrendering all to him. And they experience a surge of spiritual joy and victory, and they ride that till about Wednesday, and they're driving home from work. And I, I mean, I thought people drive bad in, in Detroit. I mean, <laughs> Houston's crazy, right? So, so they're, they're going, going down the road, and somebody cuts them off, and <laughs> right, they blow up. And here's what can happen. They can go, well, I must not have gotten dedicated. There's still some secret closet of my life that I haven't surrendered to Jesus. That's why I can't experience victory here. And they go through that cycle a half dozen, dozen times, and then they're just like, it's just never going to happen. And they, res- they, they essentially uh, resolve themselves to a lesser kind of spiritual existence because this secret of entire consecration or dedication, they just can't get there. Now folks, that is not what this text is talking about. You know what this this text is talking about? Is you yielding obedience to the Spirit of God whenever he applies the Word of God to you. We are being transformed. Transformed right? I'm not actually against crisis. I think we should have a lot more of them. Every time I come under the conviction of the Spirit through the Word, I ought to bow the knee to the Lord, confess my sin, and plead for His mercy and strength. It, in fact, is a process that should be ongoing constantly, not some kind of two-step to live above sin somehow. Because you can't do that. We do not operate in that way. So God has created a process of transformation that is to govern our lives. And notice the product that this transformation produces. We are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The word same tips us off, as I mentioned, that the image is the glory of the Lord. Right? And we see down in chapter 4 that it's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and in fact in four four, it uses the phrase image, right? The gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the product that God is working to produce in us is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So I mean, Let me just sort of step back into the grand scheme of this for a moment, all right? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Mankind is made in the image of God, right? 1 Corinthians 11 says the image and glory of God. We know that that's God's intention for us is to reflect his glory as his image bearers. But you all know from Romans chapter 3 that we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, But when we rebelled against God and sinned, it did not obliterate the image of God. Because in Genesis chapter 9, capital punishment is instituted. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So well after the fall, humanity still bears the image of God God enough that if someone murders somebody, it's actually an attack upon the image of God. But it's even more profound than that because James chapter 3 says that if we curse those who are made in the likeness of God, we're actually sinning against that image as well. So mankind lives in our fallen condition, bearing the image of God, but marred by sin. But you know what happens at conversion? I just quoted 2 Timothy 5.17 a minute ago. Excuse me, amen. Being Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 says, And put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. The moment you came to Christ, you actually experience the power of God creating in you a new nature which is intended to reflect the character of God. All right. Now, that's where we started. It's where we fell to, and then God began that work. And you know where the end of that work is? Romans chapter 8, he says, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And you know what we're held out in front of us in 1 John chapter 3? When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All right? So, from the moment of your conversion and this creative power of God that said, Let there be light, and made you a new creature in Christ, from that moment, until your glorification, when you will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, who is the express image of his person. Here's our text. You are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and you are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Or the language of Colossians chapter 3, and verse 10, are being renewed according to to the knowledge of him who created us, right? God is progressively making us like Jesus. He is actually changing us. And again, here's where some systems of sanctification, I think, have made it more complicated and complex because they turn around and they go, you know, nothing actually ever changes, It's just the counteraction in you between the old nature and the new nature, right? Some people actually write things like the old nature can do nothing but sin and the new nature can never sin. And you have to live in such a way that you are consistently trying to yield to the new nature. I mean, you've probably heard it in the more simplified ways, right? There's a a bad dog and a good dog and it depends on which one you feed, Right but but in reality if you stop and try and think about that it's just mind-boggling. Right because if if I am not the old nature or the new nature and the old nature can do nothing but sin and the new nature can do nothing but right where do I fit in there? Right and and so you end up with people just like mentally like uh, to go back to the dog analogy, like they're chasing their tail in a circle, because it really doesn't make sense. But someone will go, "Oh yes, I've discovered the secret," right, and and make it sound pious and spiritual, and cause everyone to feel like, "Well, I don't want to admit that this doesn't make sense because then they'll think I'm unspiritual." Right? It's just it's not in the scriptures. Right that is not the way the Bible declares the path of growth for a believer. You actually are being changed. Right? Are being transformed. So what I was before I knew Christ, I am not any longer. And as God graciously is working through his word to change me, I'm actually growing in Christ. He is making me like his son. In fact, that's why he saved me. He didn't save me to just get me to heaven. Or when I had trusted Christ, I'd be there. He saved me to make me like his sons so that he will be the firstborn among many brethren. And that process is happening. We're not a Jekyll and Hyde. We're not a good dog and a bad dog. We do fight with the flesh. And there is a war. The spirit fights against the flesh. And we are supposed to walk in the spirit. But I'm not a spiritually schizophrenic whatever. Right? I have a responsibility to get into the Word and let God take the Word and change me and transform me. And that leads us to the last part of the verse. Is, so really, what's the cause of this? Notice it says, justice from the Lord, the Spirit. In keeping with the theme that Paul's been developing all the way through chapter 3, it is the powerful work of the Spirit that accomplishes these things. He is transforming people through the gospel and the word because he gives life. He's the one that opens the understanding. He's the one that's renewing the, the nature of the person who's come to Christ. It is the work of God. The one who actually produces it is the one who, who is energizing these transformations. So we depend on Him. So let me, if I could summarize, summarize it, I summarize this way: God changes us by His Spirit through the Word to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. It's, it's really, it, it really is that simple. God changes us by his Spirit through the Word to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. So let me just draw some implications and exhortations here, all right? First is this, that real radical change is Christ-centered, word-saturated, and Spirit-produced. It's Christ-centered because it's the glory of the Lord. It's word-saturated because we're beholding in a mirror. And it is spirit-produced because it's from the Lord. All right, those three need to be held very tightly together. Right, It centers on Christ through the Word by the Spirit. So, so growing as a Christian is yielding obedience to the work of God through his Word to shape us into the image of Christ. When we find the truth in the Word, we accept it, we yield it, we bow the knee to it. And it can't really be Christ-centered and Word-saturated without also being very gospel-focused. Because if you go through this passage, it moves pretty easily between the Word, the Word of God, our gospel, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. All right, so the, the good news that comes to us that God saves sinners through His Son is the, the centerpiece of what we're seeing we're holding fast to because as we understand more and more the love of Christ chapter 5 will say it constrains us right when we start to understand how much Christ loved us in giving his life for us it takes hold of us and we come to a conclusion chapter 5 says that that those who have Had this happened, right, that Christ died for them should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. So understanding the work of God through Christ to redeem us is what actually takes hold of our hearts and frees us from selfish pursuits to live for the Savior, to live for him who died, and that calls us out of ourselves. Now I know that, especially in our day, right? And and uh, obviously I've got, you, you get one message in a fairly quick amount of time, so I'm fighting my gift of sarcasm here, all right? But <laughs> we have been we have been inundated and overwhelmed with psychological conceptions of the spiritual growth. All right, and the modern one, right? The prevailing one now, is the way you really change is if you get a better view of yourself. Right? You need to understand your identity. And once you get a healthy view of your identity, then you can grow. And so someone might be sitting here saying, "Listen, I mean, that's I, all great what you said, but I need you to tell me what to do." Tell me how to fix this. Tell me what steps to take. I need to know what I can do. And I would suggest to you, hopefully graciously, that that what you actually re- really need to see is Jesus Christ. And see him so clearly that you take the focus off of yourself and off of whatever it is that has ensnared you. Right? We heard it last night, looking unto Jesus. Right? And, and I think this preoccupation with us trying to change our self-perception so we can grow is actually obscuring the mirror. It's fogging the mirror, if I could put it that way. And what we have to recognize is that God has given us the remedy. We need to get in the book. Look at Jesus. Look at God's grace in Christ. Look at what he's done for us. Look at all the blessings that he has blessed us with in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as we turn our eyes to that, God graciously is working to change us so that we are starting to become like the one we're looking at and we're drawn out to Christ and he makes us different through it. And this truth, if we understand the context, gives us confidence in our ministry. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, having such a hope... We use great boldness. And you know what it does? It sustains us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We do not lose heart. The fact is that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and accomplishes the work. So you know what we do? We trust the Word. And we speak boldly and plainly. And when it's it's a hard tough path that God is using to change us. You know, what we, you know what we do? We don't go, oh man, I need something more. We say we need more of the something. We don't lose heart. We don't quit. We keep our eyes on the things which are unseen and see God change us for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your gracious work on our behalf, through your Son, to make us new creatures in Christ. And thank you for giving us your word and the work of your Spirit to change us. Lord, we need to be changed. We're not there yet. We, we long to be like Christ, and we want to be faithful in following him. Help us to do so, not by our own ideas, and our own designs, but simply, humbly, faithfully, taking your word and feeding on it and seeing the glory of our Lord there and seeing you change us graciously and powerfully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.